Whatever you do, you're to do for the glory of God. And when you tend to separate the secular from the sacred, the results church history has shown has always been disastrous. And so Jesus, through this chapter, is going to remind us how it is that we live in God's presence, how we live with an undivided heart. Nothing worse than a divided heart, James tells us. A double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. God wants us to have a clear, undivided heart. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a series of special messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy over the last two years. And today's sermon is titled, Overcoming Worry and Fear. We will see in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus is going to help deliver us from our fears by giving us instruction on how to have a heart that is clear, clean, and focused on Him, free from anxiety and worry. Please join us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, as we begin. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 6. As you can see, the title of this morning's message is Overcoming Worry and Fear. And let me just say, fear and worry, they are Siamese twins. And typically, well, at least for the born-again believer, when you solve one, you solve the other. And right now, our nation is covered over, our world is covered over in both fear and anxiety and worry. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs, anxiety in a person's heart weighs him down but an encouraging word brings him joy. And so I want to bring you some joy this morning. If you have a fearful, anxious, worried heart, I want you to get God's perspective because we of all people ought to be joyous. In Psalm 42, King David asks and answers his own question. He asks, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? And then he says, because he had found the answer, Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. On one day when his life was literally physically threatened, he'd pen this in Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to help to deliver us from our fears. He's going to give us some instruction on how to have a heart that is clear and clean and focused on him, free from anxiety and worry. Now, we're in that section of Scripture that Augustine in the 4th century called the Sermon on the Mount. It comprises chapters 5 through 7. And I love this, this sermon be, uh, that he gave because it speaks not just to theory. It really speaks to where we live each and every day. And if you're not familiar with this sermon, the focus is not so much on how to become a Christian, how to get saved... But the focus and thrust of this sermon is how to live in light of the fact that we are saved. Now, he addresses both issues, but for the most part, this sermon is directed toward the believer. Now, let me set the context here of our passage. In the first half of chapter 6, Jesus describes our private life. And in the second half, he describes our public life. In verses 1 through 18, he describes our private life as it relates to giving, praying, and then to fasting. 
But now in verses 19 to 34, where we want to give our focus this morning, he moves from our private life to our public life as he deals with money, possessions, food, drink, clothing, and the ambitions that you may have for your life. Now, unfortunately, some Bible students uh, take this chapter and they somehow dichotomize the religious from the non-religious, the religious from the secular. But you cannot put them into two separate compartments. For the believer, everything is religious. Everything is spiritual. Whatever you do, you're to do for the glory of God. And when you tend to separate the secular from the sacred, the results church history has shown has always been disastrous. And so Jesus, through this chapter, is going to remind us how it is that we live in God's presence, how we live with an undivided heart. Nothing worse than a divided heart, James tells us. A double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. God wants us to have a clear, undivided heart. And so this morning, we want to begin by reading our text of Scripture. I hope you have a Bible. Uh, I will have the slides for you, but if you don't have a Bible, you should come sometime to meet the pastor if you're living here in South Carolina, and we would like to provide one for you. Matthew chapter 6, beginning now in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches, wealth, mammon. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, as you can see from this text of Scripture, the issues that Jesus addresses were huge problems in his day, and maybe even bigger problems in our day. Now, first, in verses 19 to 24, he gives us a warning against greed, against avarice. And then in verses 25 to 34, the second half of this text, he warns against anxiety and worry. 
greed and worry, avarice and anxiety, they go together. And you see that right from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. The two are brought together because people who are consumed with material things are typically always people who are consumed with worry. And so in this section, Jesus deals first with two treasures in verses 19 to 21. He deals here with earthly treasures and then heavenly treasures. Then in verses 22 and 23, he deals with two bodily conditions. He calls one light and the other he calls darkness. Then in verse 24, Jesus looks at two masters, one called God, the other money. Then in verses 25 to 34, he deals with two mindsets or two preoccupations, one with our physical bodies, the other with the kingdom of God. And you can't sit on the fence. You're either in one camp or the other, as he will underscore. Now, sadly, the lure of materialism, especially in a nation that has been blessed as we are like America, consumes many. And whenever you're consumed with money and things and then acquiring the next possession, then you are surely going to be gripped with worry. So Jesus is going to help us because he knows his people are not above worry and fear and anxiety. And he wants us to delineate in our thinking the true from the false, the wrong way from the right way. So he's going to give us four principles that if we understand and not just understand, but apply these principles, you're going to have a life that is free from worry and anxiety. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If you're using your note-taking outline that you found there online, the first principle, principle number one, is the question of our treasure, the question of our treasure. Let's look now at verses 19 to 21. We read, starting here in verse 19, "'Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, "'where moth and rust destroy "'and where thieves break in and steal, "'but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, "'where neither moth nor rust destroys.'" And where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, in these three years that Jesus has been ministering, and in these three verses that he gives, he's giving, uh, asking us to focus on two different treasures. And it ought to be easy for us what we should want to collect, where we should put our treasure in. I mean, think about it. There's only two kinds of treasure, that which is temporal and that which is eternal that which is corruptible and that which is incorruptible. And so purely from an investment point of view, the wise person would want to invest in that which is not corruptible. Now, before we look at his teaching, we need to ask some important questions here. Was the Lord Jesus prohibiting us from uh, being provident? Was Jesus prohibiting us from owning possessions? And of course, the answer is no. This is not a prohibition against private property. In the Decalogue itself, one of the commandments is do not steal. That assumes that you are taking from someone else who owns something. He says do not covet. That assumes you are lusting after someone else's property. And so this movement in America towards socialism, which is really godless, it's rooted in Marxism and communism, denies the whole concept of personal property. 
But the Bible plainly teaches us in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. He's not prohibiting private property. He gives you things in which to enjoy. Paul will say in the same letter in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it is God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, I meet a lot of Christians who are always trying to give an explanation for what they have, whether it's their home or their cars or their boats or their clothes. But listen, if God wanted you to have that possession, doesn't matter if you bought it on sale or you got a deal on it. If God wanted you to have it, then you are to enjoy it. And if God didn't want you to have it, then there's no circumstances that can change the fact that you shouldn't own it. And so, first and foremost, Jesus is not forbidding the ownership of personal property. But for that matter, neither is he prohibiting um, thinking ahead and saving up for a rainy day. Uh, You've heard me in my recent financial course, uh, a number of sources document this, that 50% of Americans have no more than $400 in savings. And so many Americans are not ready for the challenges of our day because they're not applying biblical principles of finance. But God wants us to be prepared. He says in Proverbs chapter 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And so God is very clear that it's not an evil thing or a wrong thing to prepare for the future. He used the great man of God named Joseph to save a whole nation from perishing and many of the surrounding nations um, there outside of Egypt. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, Paul warned, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now Paul is looking upwards He is asking children to make sure as their parents age that they are well taken care of and provided for. But you could certainly apply the principle downwards. Certainly a dad should be uh, caring and loving and protective for his family to make provision. And so neither is having possessions or enjoying the possessions we have something that Jesus is speaking against. So what exactly is he forbidding in this command when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? First and foremost, selfishness. People who are misers, people who are hoarders, people who are materialists. You might want to circle two words in the text, for yourselves, for yourselves. Throughout this sermon, Jesus repeatedly refers to the heart. In chapter 5 and verse 8, he refers to the pure of heart. In chapter 5 and verse 28, he refers to lust in the heart. And here in this section, he speaks of the direction of our heart. In verse 21, he reminds us that our heart will always follow our treasure, whether it's down to earth to a this life only kind of perspective or whether it's up to heaven. In a word, laying up for yourselves treasures on earth is not a prohibition against being provident. provident. It is a prohibition against being covetous. God does not want you to covet. He wants you to enjoy what you have. The question is, what has you? Do your possessions own you? Or do you, as a steward of what God has given you, do you see that these are God's things for you to enjoy and to be a good steward over? 
And so God's not against wealth as you read the scripture. Some of God's choicest servants were wealthy. Abraham, who's deemed the father of the faithful. In Genesis 13, it says, now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. King David, who in both testaments is called a man after God's own heart, when his life is summarized, the chronicler writes this, then he died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches, and honor, and his son Solomon reigned in his place. Joseph of Arimathea, who was prophesied in Isaiah 53 that a rich man would be in the death of the Christ. He was a rich man, and he was the one who provided that temporary tomb for the Lord Jesus. Job, he is a man that God describes as righteous, blameless. He is described in chapter one as fearing God and turning away from evil. And then a few verses later in Job 1.3, God tells us, his possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job was the Warren Buffett. He was the Bill Gates. He was the Jeff Bezos of his day. A very, very wealthy man. And that was before the Bible says at the end of Job that God took everything he had and he multiplied it twofold. My point is, again, the Bible is not speaking against being wealthy, but it does tell us in the Mosaic law, Moses will write in Deuteronomy 8, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth. My friend, if you are wealthy, if you are rich, don't be conceited in your riches. It is God who gave you the strengths and the gifts and the abilities to be able to multiply wealth. Now, it is true that money has a way of keeping people out of the kingdom of God. Classic example that Jesus addressed was the rich young ruler. We can certainly make it an idol. But again, in this sermon, he is not principally dealing with the lost. He is focusing on those who are saved. The issue at hand is not in getting into heaven, but getting our treasure up in heaven, to lay up treasure in heaven. He's reminding us that earthly things are transient, but heavenly things are eternal. Earthly things will pass away. And so he gives us three illustrations to remind us of this truth. Look at verse 19. Jesus commands us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So first he reminds us of earthly treasure that moth can eat. It's the smallest little creature. I had a moth get into one of my suits and basically ruin the suit. It made it worthless. In addition, rust, and we live here on the East Coast close to the water, you know its corrosive power. You know what rust can do. And then here he speaks of thieves that can break in and steal. Now in Christ's day, uh, moths would get into people's wardrobes. We walk into a closet and we may have five shirts that we have to choose from. In the first century, they might have had only one set of clothes in the typical household. And if a moth ate into the clothing, it was destructive. You would have rats, you would have mice, you would have worms that would get into the stored food. Not to mention rust and its, again, corrosive power, even in that day, and thieves that could break in and steal. Now, in our day, we may try to protect what we have with a corrosive paint or uh, rust-proof paints or with insecticides or with security systems and uh, video monitoring and all that we have. 
But wealth, even in our day, can be disintegrated. Inflation can eat it up. We can enter into an economic slump. We can borrow money that we don't have. And we are barring ourselves ultimately into an implosion in this country. You cannot break the principles of God. You cannot break the laws of God and not be broken by them. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. And sooner or later, it is going to come and bite us this incredible debt that we are taking on. Job knew um, how important it was to think about the next life. He said, naked I came into my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter six, for we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. Think about the pharaohs of Egypt. They were buried with their gold and all of their expensive treasures, but they left it all behind. All of the precious metal I own in this world is right here at my finger. That's all the gold that I own. But I want to tell you, you get to heaven someday, and the streets are literally paved with gold. And so Christ is admonishing us. It doesn't come out in our English Bibles, but literally it appears twice in the Greek New Testament. Jesus says, stop treasuring treasure. Stop treasuring treasure. Some years ago, I read about a man named Charlie Dobson who lived in Ontario during the Canadian garbage strike. And the garbage was piling up all around town. And this man, this 82-year-old man, each day he'd take his coffee rinds and his grapefruit rinds and his uh, coffee grinds and his eggshells and old newspapers, and he'd put them into a box. And then he would put a beautiful gift wrapping over it and a bow all around it, and he'd set it out on the curb by his house. He'd go into his house, get behind the curtain, he'd watch. And sooner or later, some car would stop and take his gift wrapped garbage away with them. And I thought about it. That's really what the devil does. He gives us gift wrapped garbage and that he causes us and encourages us to focus on this life only, the here and now only. And Jesus is saying, stop treasuring earthly treasure. Look at verse 20. Listen to his advice. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So we need to ask a second question. What is it that really constitutes heavenly treasure? The Lord here speaks of treasures that moths cannot eat, that rust cannot corrode, that thieves cannot take from you. He's giving us advice on how to have a safety deposit box in heaven. And so how do you know really if you are laying up treasure in heaven or if you as a Christian are simply laying up treasure on earth? Well, here's a good thing to do. You add up everything that money cannot buy, that moths and worms and rust cannot destroy, and that no one can come and steal away from you, and then you will really know just how rich you are. Jesus is talking about doing things that will last for eternity. And a careful study of Scripture, which, by the way, we carefully delineate in our Back to Basics series at searchthescriptures.org. If you don't have the phone app, you ought to go to the App Store and download searchthescriptures.org. And one of the courses we teach here every Sunday, we call it the Discovery Class. Online, it's called Back to Basics. And on the Back to Basics course, we carefully list those things that God constitutes as eternal treasure versus 
temporal treasure. But let me just give you a few. Number one, eternal treasure would be Christ-like character. Listen, when you leave this world, all you're going to take is yourself. You never see a U-Haul, as Dr. Graham used to say, behind a hearse. No, the only thing that you can take is yourself. And when God looks at your life, he will look at the kind of character that you saw developed after you were saved, and he'll reward you for that. Another thing that we cover in the discovery class that God rewards you for are those efforts to win people to Jesus. For the Son of Man, the Bible says, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. God will reward you for that. Now, I know some sow seed, some water the seed, and some harvest the seed. Maybe as of yet, you personally have never led someone through the sinner's prayer. But if you tried to win someone to Christ, have you tried to give a word of truth from the Scripture? Have you looked for an open door? Are you praying for open doors? Have you even invited someone to church? Another way in which God will reward us is how we use our money. Do you use it for the local church and the world missions that a local church is to invest in? Or are you using it just for yourself? Another point of evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ, a judgment that Christians alone will experience, save people alone, not to see if you will get into heaven, but how God will reward you once you get to heaven is how you use your spiritual gifts. In a few weeks, I'm going to be speaking on the subject of spiritual gifts. God is gonna look at the whole package, the gift that he gave you on the day you were converted, and there are 20 listed in the New Testament, at least 16 that are being given today, and how you're using your time, talents, and treasure for the kingdom of God. So have you taken a look at your eternal portfolio? Some people are in misery, as you've seen on the news. A lot of people lost a lot of money in recent days. What would happen if you came home from work and an earthquake had hit your home and the thing was totally crumbled or a tornado had taken it down and you had no insurance? What would you have really lost? Well, it all depends on what you're really living for. And if you're living just for the here and now, then you would have lost it all. But if you are living for that which is eternal, though your house may be crumbled by an earthquake, you maybe have not lost a single thing in terms of what's really, truly valuable. So Jesus reminds us here in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. What do you dream about? I mean, when it's just you. You're out cutting the grass, you're driving the car down. What do you dream about? What do you ponder on in your heart? Is it about the furtherance of God's kingdom? Or is it about the furtherance of your kingdom? I mean, does the kingdom of God really even matter to you? Do you care about the fact that people are going to die and go to a literal place of eternal retribution the Bible calls hell? Do you care enough to invite someone to church to share your testimony or to share the plan of salvation? Do you care enough to commit yourself in obedience to the New Testament to a local New Testament church? Do you care enough to give a tenth of your increase to the work of Jesus Christ? Do you care enough to give God your very best and not your leftovers? We have seen that Jesus, by his own example, showed us in this chapter how to live in God's presence as we live with an undivided heart. We hope that you will join us tomorrow for part two of our series of Overcoming Worry and Fear. 
Remember, if you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program OWF020. You could support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.